Hello and welcome to episode two of Have You Got That Right, the podcast of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. Uh, I'm your host, Marius Smith, manager of the Caston Centre. I'm Melissa Caston, deputy director of the Caston Centre. Today's a special interview edition of the podcast where we'll be chatting with Professor Kevin Washburn, who is visiting from the US as part of our Holding Red League Distinguished Visiting Fellowship Program. Kevin Washburn is a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation of Oklahoma and is currently Professor of Law at the University of New Mexico Law School, where he was previously dean. But he's better known for serving as the highest ranking advisor to the US President on issues involving Indian tribes during the second term of the administration of President Barack Obama. Kevin was confirmed as Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs at the US Department of the Interior, unanimously by the US Senate. Kevin Washburn, welcome to the podcast and welcome to Australia. Grateful to be here. So to get us started, can you clarify just for us in Australia the position in the Obama administration? Your title was Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs, but you're in fact the head of Indian Affairs. Is that right? Well, so my job was to oversee the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Bureau of Indian Education and about five other offices, each of which had its own director. And so frequently in newspapers in the United States, I would be called the head of the BIA or something like that. But my technically... There was there was a director of the BIA, and he reported to me. Um, so, but I was more the political point person between the White House and all of the Indian Affairs agencies. Okay. Um, so that's the way it works. It's complicated. It's an unusual position because most there there are something like there are probably you know two or three hundred assistant secretaries in the federal government. Most of them are not exactly household names. Right. But for me, it was like being governor of the Indian tribes or something. It mm. was like, you know, I, I, two million people were sort of under my jurisdiction. Yeah. So it was a little bit like being a state governor for a far-flung state, very rural, um, with people all over the United States from Florida to Maine to Alaska to Southern California. Um, Indian country in the United States spans the, you know, the whole country. Yeah. And um, so that was, that was the position. Thank you. Um, before we get on to more substantive matters, um, I've just got a quick question about that title. Um, I'm, I'm aware in the past that um, it was considered offensive to describe Native Americans as Indians. Um, so it seems so somewhat surprising that the government still refers to Indian affairs. Um, so, so why is that and, and what terms are acceptable for us to use when we're discussing America's Indigenous people? Well, let me say this. The law is a very conservative institution and there are five volumes of the United States Code that say Indians on the spine. Mm. And there are, you know, hundreds of laws that in their title is the word Indian. And so I'm a lawyer in addition to, you know, these other things. And so I'm accustomed to using the term. I was also called an Indian since my birth. And I, you know, it's a stupid term, right? Columbus made a mistake. He thought he was an Indian. <laughs> yeah. So we, we can agree that the term is, a, you know, a, a, an incorrect term. Mm. But it's one that, you know, most Native Americans have been called since birth. And so it's not that offensive to the average Native American or American Indian to be called that. However, we don't refer to ourselves that way. Mm. I would not necessarily say that I'm Indian. I would say that I'm Chickasaw. Mm -hmm. So there's a much more specific term that's more accurate yeah. that we tend to use internally when we're talking to someone else. Yeah. You might be a Mohawk. You might be a Chippewa. I'm a Chickasaw, yeah. and so that's more the way the terms get used. But none of those terms are offensive to me. I think um, Native American is probably a slightly better term, and indigenous is even a slightly better term. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and we even use the term Aboriginal sometimes. I think that's probably the more common term here. But um, yeah. but at any rate, those uh, you know I don't get offended by any terms. I like to get to the substance of the issues, and those can be important. We are dealing with an issue in the United States right now with regard to a, a football team of all yeah. things called mm-hmm. the Washington. Redskins. I don't usually use that word. I call them the Washington (laughs) R-words or the Washington football team. But we we are dealing with that issue. That term is actually considered to be uh, offensive by many people. Mm. So that's one I would stay away from. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. But Indians is fine. (laughs) So moving on from the kind of, you know, naming issues, I know that environmental issues play a very, played a very high profile role um, in Native American issues during your term. Can you tell us briefly about the, the, I guess, the story and then the conclusion of the Dakota Access Pipeline dispute and your role or your experiences inside the administration during that very contentious time? Well, it's interesting. I had not heard of the Dakota Access Pipeline by the time I left office in, you know, effective January 1, 2016. That issue really hit about April of that Mm. year. And by that time, there had been several hundred miles of pipeline already built. And I was actually at the location where the protesters were, uh, you know, have been. I was there with President Obama in, I believe it was July of 2014, and no one mentioned a word about the Dakota Access Pipeline mm-hmm. while we were there. So it was a bit of a surprise to the administration and to me. And it didn't, again, it didn't come up till after I left. Um, you know, the, and the companies that were building it expressed great frustration about that because they had tried to work with the tribes, they claim. Um, the tribes, you know, for their part, basically have said, well, we didn't raise a big deal about it because we weren't going to negotiate. If someone's coming at you with a knife, you don't show them where to cut, was mm-hmm. basically their point. Mm-hmm. And so it's in tragic in some respects, but it was um, tough for the Obama administration because we had been dealing with what had seemed like a much bigger issue for a long time, the Keystone XL pipeline yes. coming from Canada. Mm. And that was an issue that for three years... Native Americans came in to speak to me about it, different tribal leaders. And we worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. And the Obama administration finally disapproved that pipeline mm. And um, after much process. And that Obama administration really didn't have that opportunity with regard to the Dakota Access Pipeline because, you know, no one raised it with mm. us. It seemed to be fine. Um, there weren't a lot of... Um, there was no communication, really. Mm. That said, once the administration got focused on the issue... It ultimately disapproved parts of the pipeline, the key parts of the pipeline. And um, both of those decisions, the Keystone XL pipeline and the Dakota Access pipeline, were quickly reversed mm. when Trump was elected. Mm. Um, I don't think that it's over yeah. just yet because there is litigation and the tribes have um, some valid claims about the harms that are mm. the potential harms this goes through key waterways for tribes yeah. and um, the frustrating thing is this isn't uh, we changed and during the Obama administration we changed the law uh, to benefit tribes tremendously one of the things that we said is tribes have a veto over rights of way across their lands mm. the problem with the Dakota Access Pipeline is it doesn't actually cross mm. land that is still considered to be owned by the Standing Rock mm-hmm. Sioux Tribe it, it crosses I believe just north of their lands mm. 
but their former land, it, it yes. certainly is their former lands, and so they have every reason to be interested and concerned mm. about that, but they don't ha technically have the legal power to mm. stop it. If it had been across the reservation, they absolutely have the veto mm -hmm. power now, which is a new development mm. during the Obama, Obama mm. administration. And it was a really interesting debate because it really galvanized the Native American claim issues to a broader audience, you know, which has always been quite you know, difficult to get what we'll call mainstream advocates and activists interested in, in Native American or Indigenous issues wholeheartedly or un, at least understanding it from the Indigenous perspective. And this dispute to me seemed to really galvanise, you know, the, the outside uh, kind of advocacy groups. It really touched a nerve. It really did. And, um, and also... We have social media now. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it was really the first thing in my policy space where social media really took off and, and became a really important vehicle for getting the word out and for activism and protest. Um, and so that was a change. That was a big yeah. change and, and an important one. Frankly, it has sort of awoke, awoken a sleeping giant yeah. in some respects that way. And it's interesting that it did bring some environmental activists to be aligned with tribes on these issues, or at least aligned with Indian people. At times during that uh, protest, I was concerned that the tribe had sort of lost control of yep. it to yeah. outside activists. Yeah. And, and that's um, always an issue, isn't it, it? it? It is an issue, and it was very, you know, very real there, although... I couldn't tell if the tribe was leading the, um, yeah. you know, the mm. the protest or being drawn uh, along with it in some in some yeah. ways in some respects. Although they certainly are opposed to the pipeline, yeah. but they sometimes were not able to. The tribe, you know, even on its own lands or near its own lands, was sort of unable to, to sort of claim the policy space, and that yeah. gave me pause yes. to some degree. Yeah, but it's certainly an important issue, and I don't think we've seen the last of it yet. And and that's an interesting point you raise because from the outside looking, because of course you know we only observed it through the social media kind of telescope. It did seem that that debate about whether the agenda was being co-opted by non-tribal activists, you know, and whether that whether the tribal you know leadership was able to kind of control that, as you say, that sleeping giant, seemed to be a real issue. And it also the, even the fact that people were alert to that issue meant that it was. A step forward, you know, rather than the indigenous perspective just being subsumed by whatever you know wave of interest that had come along. So at least that issue of you know, well, who's driving this story at the moment was was actually part of the debate. I felt absolutely, and uh, you know, I saw the tribal chairman. I got to know him really well in my job, actually, in part because we went out with Obama and visited mm. that land two years before these issues arose. But uh, the last time I saw him, he was traveling with. Um, you know, sort of a spokesperson, social media advisor, and you know, because he could utter something and it would get forty thousand yeah. hits on social media mm. within twenty-four hours. Wow. You know, just from him putting out a statement. So yeah. it was quite incredible. It really did galvanize a lot of support and um, loose organization, I would say, but, yeah. but organization around an important indigenous issue. Mm. A very that's a, that's a victory. Yeah. Um, beyond pipelines, um, oil drilling is a big issue also for um, both the nascent Trump administration and for um, some Native American tribes. According to one report, um, reservations cover about 2% of the land in the US but um, contain up to 20% of oil and gas re um, reserves. 
Um, the Trump administration has stated it's keen to increase drilling and has apparently floated a plan to privatise reservation land as a way of making that happen. Um, now, land rights are an enormous issue for Indigenous groups in Australia. Is this proposal setting off alarm bells for Native American tribes? Yes and no, yeah. because, you know, there are 567 tribal nations in the United States, and some of them have oil and gas resources or coal resources, and some of them don't. And some of them have values that are consistent with developing those resources, and some of them don't. And so it's really not a monolithic Thing It's not a monolithic culture. Everybody's got their own ideas, even within one tribe. You know, there are the environmentalists and there's the, there are the conservatives. That, you know, that's the mm -hmm. they are political institutions mm -hmm. with all of the, you know, the ramifications of that. We did a lot during the Obama administration to try to uh, improve energy development on public lands. And Indian lands in the United States are considered federal public lands. They're held in trust for Indian tribes. And it's about 60 million acres nationwide. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of land, as you said, 2% of, of the land base of the United States. We created rules that um, limited hydraulic fracturing, mm -hmm. fracking mm -hmm. we call it, um, so that um, you don't destroy the water, uh, groundwater uh, resources in the area. We also enacted rules about venting and flaring. So whenever someone drills for oil, also natural gas and other gases come out of the hole. And um, oftentimes in the past, what's been happened is they just burn that off. They flare that those those other gases off because they're considered waste gases, but they are actually quite valuable. Hmm. Um, we also issued a new rule changing the royalty rates so that. Um, the owners, whether it's the federal government or the tribes as the beneficial owner, get higher royalties. Mm. And um, the Trump administration has indicated that it will be turning back each of those rules. Um, some of those are just bad for tribes altogether, um, but um, some of them, there might be tribes on both sides of the issue. There are a very small number of tribes that have these substantial resources, um, or coal or oil and gas, and the Trump administration has generally it looks like been kind of bad for tribes so far, but they've been very solicitous of the tribes that have these resources, mm -hmm. and they've those tribes have had access to the White House. So um, that's where the Trump administration has been successful in sort of splitting off some of the tribes. So it looks like a much more complicated issue because he's got some tribes on his side. Mm -hmm. One thing that um, the Trump administration is saying is that um, a problem with oil and gas drilling is that um, the process for approval is much more difficult on tribal lands than it would be on private land, and they're seeking to make that easier, you know, which could potentially benefit, you know, um, tribes as well as drillers. Um, do you got any comment about that? Well, we tried that once before. We, <laughs> we had this long process called allotment um, during the, the turn of the 19th century. You know, the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was a move to privatize all Indian lands, Indian reservations. And that's really why there are a lot of non-Indians now living within the boundaries of Indian reservations, because the Indian reservations, while the boundaries might not have been disestablished, the lands within those boundaries were allotted to individuals, um, individual Indians originally, but then whatever land was left over mm. was, was allowed to be settled by non-Indians. And um, that created this real problem. It basically separated Indians from their land because once it became private land, it was subject to taxation, property taxes by the local uh, divisions of government. We call them counties in the 
United States. And, um, you know, pretty soon the lands were sold for tax sales because the Indian mm. people weren't paying their taxes. Yeah, right. So that was the we, we tried this once before, mm. I guess, is what mm. I would say. Yeah. And it utterly failed and has been widely criticized. And so no Indian tribes are on board with the idea of privatization. Mm. Um, they, they, are, they would be opposed to that. And it just seems to be an easy way to separate Indians from their land. Yeah. So okay. the the administration was um, did some work to return tracts of lands to Native Americans. Um, can you tell us what, what what was behind that proposal and why sure. that was important? Sure. Yeah, the Obama administration was very interested in restoring tribal homelands. I mean, if you ask tribes, what do you want? You know, and tribes are unhappy, right? They, mm. They've been unhappy for two hundred years, and you ask them what they want, they say, "We want our land back." Mm-hmm. And uh, so we really made a real effort to help them recover their lands. Mm. And um, honestly, mostly what we did was just take the lands that they owned into trust so they wouldn't be subject to state or county taxation. So they would purchase the lands, and then we would take it into trust federally Mm -hmm. so that it was therefore protected. And that also, by the way, meant that it was the place where tribal sovereignty reigned rather than state sovereignty. Once the land goes into trust state laws are preempted on that land. Now. Okay. And so that was what we did and it was ultimately um depending on how you count and what you count it was ultimately well over 2 million acres that was restored to tribes yeah. through our our efforts and um tribes were very happy about that. Um the Trump administration has claimed that they will still take land into trust but they are uh, it's controversial yeah. and um they have also They've got constituents who are very much opposed to that. Yeah. And they are listening to those constituents, at least to some degree. So we can't tell how effective they will be in doing that. I will say during the George W. Bush administration, the administration that preceded Barack Obama, very little land was taken into trust for that eight years. So, um, you know, people generally in the United States, this is in part a political issue between Republicans and Democrats. Democrats are more favorable towards land into trust, and Republicans are more opposed to it. And when it's held in trust, who makes the decisions about what happens about those lands? So is it about trusting the current administration in that trust relationship? A little bit, yeah. So... um, we made major strides during the Obama administration to turn that decision-making power over to the tribes. So in addition to the right-of-way issue that I mentioned, that land is sometimes leased, and we've turned the leasing decisions over to the tribes as well. Mm-hmm. So, But it is federal land, and it's subject to some federal oversight. And so, for example, if a tribe wants to develop some something on the land, they have to go through our uh, federal environmental laws which requires assessment of the environmental issues and sometimes an impact study for you know the uh, the specific project they want to pr- uh, pursue. So it is clunky. It mm. is it is more difficult to develop things on a, on Indian lands um, than it would be on private lands. Yeah, but, but that's uh, a, that's seen as a safeguard, right? It is seen as a safeguard, and it's it's kind of the cost of the preemption, the, getting the federal preemption of state taxation. Yeah. You know, the United States in the United States, tribes are not really adequately considered in the Constitution, frankly, much like Australia. Um, And so there is not a real special place for tribes. The Constitution of the United States is a compact between the colonies, which became the states, Mm. and the federal government. And the tribes weren't part of the deal. Mm. So there's no special status for Indian tribes or Indian lands 
unless they are owned by the federal government. Mm-hmm. So, and then that's reliant on the federal government engaging in kind of proper legal relations with the tribal structures, right? That's exactly right. And, and so um, you mentioned sovereignty, and sovereignty is a, a really uh, a contentious and must much you know, discussed issue amongst Indigenous peoples all around the world. When you talk about sovereignty in the context of the American tribal lands, what do you mean by sovereignty there? Well, I mean the whole host of governmental powers, I guess, because I, I actually came to this position because I was an, as an academic, I had written a lot about criminal justice in Indian country. And frankly, there are very serious public safety problems. There is a really high incidence of sexual assault and homicide and, and other violent crimes within Indian reservations. And people kept asking me as a criminal law scholar, how do we solve that problem? And I said, well, for 200 years, we've tried to let the feds solve the problem. And guess what? It hasn't worked. Mm. So the answer to me is tribal sovereignty. Mm. We need to restore criminal justice authority to tribes so that tribes can prosecute people Mm -hmm. that commit crimes on their reservations. They are much more attuned to the issues on their reservations than the the distant, aloof federal government is. And um, so that's really what I mean when I talk about sovereignty is all of those kind of powers, including the power to prosecute. And one of the a couple of the changes that happened during the Obama administration um, were, and again, I had written about this as a scholar, but one of them was restoring felony jurisdiction to Indian tribes. They'd had misdemeanor jurisdiction yep. before that, but it was also restoring the power to prosecute non-Indians for a narrow range of offenses dealing with sexual assault and um, domestic violence. Where those were occurring on Indian lands. When right? they're occurring on Indian lands, that's right. So it restored some territorial sovereignty mm-hmm. to tribes that they had had lost. Mm. And I know once when I was in, visiting Oklahoma, I was witness to a, a treaty signing ceremony, which was actually a tax treaty between a certain tribal community and the, the state government, I guess, mm-hmm. and they were signing over a tax arrangement. That's, a, that's another form of expression of sovereignty, I guess, the, the capacity to actually engage in agreement-making with the dominant legal or political system. That's exactly right. And um, we would characterize the compromising as an exercise of sovereignty too, right? Sometimes you don't, you know, you, you exercise your sovereignty by agreeing mm-hmm. with a, another government uh, rather than fighting the, the other government. We would characterize that in the United States as a, a, what you saw as a tax compact. Mm-hmm. Um, a treaty is a, in the United States mm-hmm. under U.S. Mm-hmm. law is an agreement between the United States and a tribe or mm-hmm. a foreign nation. But a, an agreement between a tribe and a state tends to be called a compact, mm-hmm. and it's something less than a treaty, yeah. honestly. It's, it's more of an agreement-making yeah. process, That's right? That's right. That's yeah. right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, it's interesting that, that you mention a treaty. It's an issue that's at the top of mind um, regarding Indigenous um, rights in Australia at the moment. I'm not sure if you're aware, but recently um, representatives of um, some Australia's First Nations came together and issued the Uluru Statement, which amongst other things didn't quite use the words, but it effectively called for a treaty or negotiations for a treaty between excuse me, um, Indigenous people and the Australian government. Um, from your experience in the United States, what benefits um, does a treaty potentially have? Well, it's interesting. You know, in the United States the United States stopped writing treaties Mm. with Indian tribes in 1871. Mm. And it was a peculiar reason, peculiar to the government of the United States and the way it works. But in the United States, it's up to the United States Senate, which is one branch of Congress. There's the House of Representatives and the Senate. And the Senate uh, approves treaties. 
and also confirmations of appointments to government. Um, but the House has control over the budget process. Now, the Senate has to agree to the budget, but it starts in the House mm-hmm. side. And in the 1860s, you know, after the Civil War in the United States, the Senate was um, signing treaties, still signing treaties with Indian tribes, and the House of Representatives felt left out because the Senate would, would, you know, the president would sign a treaty and the Senate would ratify that treaty, and then the House would be asked for the money to mm-hmm. implement yeah, the treaty. Yeah. And the House said, we want a seat at the table if we're going to be involved in this. And so they said there will be no more treaties. There are still effectively treaties because they now pass laws. They're just called laws mm-hmm. because they, they get the approval from both the House and the Senate mm-hmm. and signed by the president. But um, but the formal treaty-making process has sort of ended. There are now, however, the kind of thing that Melissa talked about, which is a lot of agreements between states and tribes. And so, for example, in the United States, a lot of tribes are using um, casinos, um, mm-hmm. gambling operations for economic development. And to do so, tribes tend to have to sign a compact, what we call a gaming compact, mm-hmm. with the state in which they they live mm. um, and so and we have tax compacts and we've got tobacco compacts and the kinds of things that are taxed mm. tend to require compacts mm. because it's not entirely clear how the law applies given that the state does not have the power to regulate tribes that mm. can do business mm. within the state. Mm. So the assumption was I guess if you didn't have that compact or you didn't have that agreement those tribal land areas would be free of state law. They would have some degree of federal law and by, by being free of state law, they could, you know, sell tobacco without having taxes on it or sell... They can. So, they, you know, prohibited substance, otherwise prohibited substance. That's right. That's right. The problem, that, however, is the state has the right to tax non-Indians even if they're within an Indian right. reservation. So it creates this gray area. And so the compacts are basically a way to try to make the law clear mm. so that we don't have to argue about it and we don't have to litigate about it. Yeah. And so that's really what the purpose there is for, for having those compacts or treaties, if you will. It just sort of clear, clarifies what the law is and, and who pays what and um, makes things work in a much more rational fashion. Mm. So during the time that you were working in the Obama administration, the spending on Native Americans you know, was increased to... to I assume what was the highest level so far, and now we're looking at a period where that's looking like it's going to decline or cut down quite rapidly. Um, that's going to have huge impacts on education and housing and, and tr- even tribal law enforcement and the way infrastructure's developed. You know, what do you think the future's going to hold in, in, in the kind of federal and tribal relationship in that spending sphere? Well, it is troubling. Um, one thing that I would say is that, you know, the federal spending has really helped to support tribal governments. And so tribal, you know, you know, we all, have, we all live under government, right? And if you go down to the, you know, I, I just walked by the Victoria Parliament building yesterday, downtown Melbourne. And um, I also walked by the city council, right? There's two levels of government. Mm-hmm. Well, tribes actually now have government buildings and they've got, tend to have lots of public employees, mm-hmm. tribal employees that are, you know, handling various important issues like education and road construction and law enforcement. And so Trump has proposed a 10 percent to 12 percent cut to um, funding for Indian tribes. And that means job losses mm-hmm. in Indian country is what that means to mm. me. That's the most clear thing is there will be job losses. And these are m- 
rural communities and mostly poor communities mm. um, where those jobs are really important. And a lot of um, you know Native Americans that have one of those jobs are supporting you know, eight to 10 to even 12 family members mm-hmm. under a single roof. Mm-hmm. And they may be the only one in that entire family that has a good job. Mm-hmm. So that's going to cause some pain, mm-hmm. some real fiscal pain if it happens. Now, the Trump administ- administration has not been terribly effective in getting anything done yet. Mm-hmm. And they've asked for these cuts, but Congress may very well not cut the budget as much as Trump has asked them to. Mm-hmm. And um, it's uh, been my experience that the appropriations officials in Congress tend to be pretty savvy about these issues. Mm. I well, remember- I mean, the cuts in one area just create a, de- a deficit somewhere else. You know, if people are left without jobs, that's just going to cause more impact on welfare and, and other kind of responses to people being jobless. So, so it, it's... it's that's you know, right. You've got to have right. the jobs for people, basically. That's exactly right. You're going to pay now or you're going to pay later, yeah, right? Well, uh, yeah, well, everyone wants to pay later, don't they? <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> I will tell you one anecdote. When I was in the position in Washington, I took a, some congressmen out to the Navajo Reservation, and um, one of the members of Congress, who's a Republican, fairly conservative, but we put him in a school bus to, um, to go on a Navajo road on the way to one of the schools so he could just see what it was like, and he rode on the school bus for about 18 miles which was not unusual for mm-hmm. the kids in the Navajo Nation. And um, he accused me of putting him in a school bus with square tires because <laughs> <laughs> it was so bumpy. Yeah. And he was in, there's a big craze in Washington and in, in America in the last few years to wear these pedometers to right. catch your steps. <laughs> it's a health thing. And he said that sitting on that bus um, for, you know, 45 minutes, his pedometer showed that he'd walked like five miles. (laughs) (laughs) And he'd just been sitting on a bus. So that's, you know, and that's one of the appropriators. And so some of the members of Congress really do understand these issues. And so we hope that they will kind of ignore um, the president's requested budget and and, um, enact a rational budget. Yeah. It does sound like, uh, I I think some congressmen have said that the budget request was dead on arrival and they'll be doing their own thing so it's good to hear you feel confident that things won't um, be cut too much in terms of reservations Um, one last question Um, I'm not sure if you're aware but the new president of the United States uh, has a long history with casinos and um, perhaps uh, it shouldn't have been a surprise me to find out that you know he in that role came into Conflict sometimes with Native American um, tribes that were running casinos. Um, uh, famously, he took out a, a million-dollar ad campaign to disparage a New York tribe um, looking to expand its casino oper- operations. Um, he once testified before a U.S. committee and said that the uh, a tribe of um, a Native American tribe didn't look like Indians. Um, he was famous for relishing the opportunity on the campaign trail to call um, Senator Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas um, for her claims that she had Native American ancestry. Um, so on a personal note, as a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation, so can you tell me what it feels like to face the prospect of having a man who's so vociferously disparages Native Americans as your president? Well... Let me say this. I've been in politics long enough that I don't take any of that personally. <laughs> um, that said, it's troubling in many respects. And, uh, you know, my sense from his business practices in the past was that Donald Trump will do what's good for Donald Trump mm. as far as business. And um, we've seen a lot of examples of that. 
and um, that was kind of the case with the, the the war that he had against tribes or regarding his Atlantic City casinos, that, which were losing a lot of business to these nascent Indian casinos that were developing in the Northeast. And um, he did famously, you know, look at some Indians, I think, at a Senate hearing and say, those don't look like Indians to me, which is a really ignorant statement because in the United States, it's not a racial status, it's a political status. Mm -hmm. You know, I I present as a white male, but I'm very much a Native American because I'm a member of a tribe. Mm -hmm. And it's not because my blood quantum is only one-eighth. I'm only one-eighth by blood quantum Native American. But I've got a membership card, so I am a Native American. I'm a member of the Chickasaw Nation of Oklahoma. And I think Trump doesn't get those subtleties. Mm. And um, in fact, if it was a racial status in the United States, it would be unconstitutional. Mm. I mean, we, don't, we can't treat people differently based on race in the United States, just as you cannot in, in Australia either. But because we have this political status, that's, that's the basis for all the laws that mm. govern Indian tribes. And as I said earlier, there are five volumes of the United States Code that treat Indian tribes and Indian people specially because of that status, not because of their race, but because of their political mm. membership in Indian tribes. Mm. So um, I would be worried about uh, Trump if he were more effective. <laughs> but fortunately, <laughs> or I mean, unfortunately for the country and the world, mm. Um, he's he's you know he's not terribly effective. Um, we do have things to worry about because he can cause some harm, but um, but I'm not terribly um, concerned that his policy agenda is going to go very far. Um, not just because it's wrong, but because his team hasn't been very competent in pursuing that agenda. Um, all right. Well, Kevin. Um Thanks for coming in and talking to us today. Uh, you're here uh, for the week. Uh, you'll be speaking at a staff seminar here shortly and tomorrow night uh, speaking at a public event for us. Uh, we're very fortunate to have you here. Um, for everyone listening to the podcast, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate the podcast as it helps others to find it and also share it through your networks. Uh, today's podcast was produced by Caitlin McInnes and please keep an eye out for ne- our next podcast in approximately two weeks on protest. Again, Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.